Welcome to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. This is Kinthea filling in for Richard. And our guest host tonight is Laura London. And our guest is Dr. Ken James. The show is Our Human Need for Myth. What does our continued fascination with UFOs really say about us? Laura London studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle and went on to earn her degree in neuropsychology from the John Carroll University in Cleveland. After working in the fields of neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine, she entered into a lengthy union analysis which led her to delve deeply into the work of Carl Gustav Jung. She has attended a wide variety of lectures and workshops with notable Jungian analysts and authors and has worked closely with the Young Association of Central Ohio and the C.G. Young Center in Chicago. Laura is a practitioner of Transcendental Meditation and Kundalini Yoga and has been a student of astrology for over 20 years. After receiving extensive training in remote viewing from a prominent member of the U.S. government's Stargate program, she worked briefly for a time as an operational remote viewer. Recently, she spent three years traveling with Tibetan Buddhist monks on the Mystical Arts of Tibet tour and is an avid supporter of Dripung Luslings Monastery in South India. She is the creator and host of the podcast Speaking of Young, Interviews with Jungian Analysts. Her frequent guests include renowned Jungian analyst Dr. James Hollis and Dr. Murray Stein. In 2015, she traveled to Zurich, Switzerland to visit the places where Jung lived and worked. Her hope is to bring the theories and applications of Jungian psychology to a wider segment of the public. I'd like to uh, let everyone know to find the page. If you're listening by radio, you go to the other side of midnight.com. The show, click on the banner for tonight's show. It's called Our Human Need for Myth. What does our continuing fascination with UFOs really say about us? And that'll take you to the page where, Laura, you have some intriguing items about a recent trip. Can you share? Hi, Kinthea. Thanks so much for that lovely introduction. I do appreciate it. Um, yeah, I went to Cape Canaveral the first week in June, and I hadn't been there for about three and a half years, and I was kind of astonished to see how much it had changed. And so I just thought I would briefly mention a few things here at the top of the show. Um, I spent three days there. Last The first time I went, I was just there for the afternoon and I went on their tour. They have these extensive bus tours that they're kind of pricey. They're $50 each and they last for three hours. They're very long and they take you back into areas that are not really accessible to the public. And so I went on the same tour that I went on three years ago and um, you know, a lot's changed and I'm very excited about all the news about the new program to send astronauts back to the moon, which is called Artemis. Another thing that is very exciting, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. So and there's so much going on right now because this year's the 50th anniversary of our moon landing with Apollo 11 coming up in July there really wasn't that much fanfare there about it. And it's only about a month away. So I was a little surprised about that. Um, but what was different was Jeff Bezos, his new company, Blue Origin, this big, beautiful new building, right when you pull into the Kennedy Space Center, you can't miss it. And it wasn't there before. And there's a big piece of land right next to it, kind of before it, where it it's just dirt right now and lots of construction vehicles where they're building um, their rocket complex, where they're going to build their rockets. So there seems to be a lot of competing companies there. And of course, SpaceX is there as well. And 
SpaceX has leased the launch pads 39A and B um, for it's a 20 year lease. And um, there's a big SpaceX building there. I don't know. What I'm trying to say is that it isn't the NASA of old, right? All this private, these private companies have moved in and they're leasing, right? And they're the ones that are going to be um, bringing back manned missions because we haven't been sending people up. And something so anyway when i'm on these bus tours they give out a lot of information i always try to sit in front of the bus so that i'm near the tour guide and i take a lot of notes and of course every time a tetrahedral number comes up i jot it down so <laughs> i have all of those written down but um something that i hadn't realized and maybe um i don't know if this is really common knowledge but you know how every time we need to send somebody up the russians do it if we need to send somebody to the International Space Station. They charge us $81 million per seat. So every per time seat? we need per seat to send up, yeah, an astronaut. So I'm just looking through my notes here, which there are way too many of. Um, and I went on another tour that I didn't do the first time. It's called the Early Space Tour, which you really have to be a space nerd to enjoy this. It takes you back into Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, which I think that's my first item in radio with pictures, is I took a photo of the map of Cape Canaveral that was on the wall that kind of explains how the whole thing is laid out. And there's a river that separates the NASA side from the Air Force Station side. So NASA is government and civilian. And Cape Canaveral Air Force Station obviously is military and they're not the same and they liken them to apples and oranges and that the Banana River separates the apples and oranges. Anyway, it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and so I could just, I could probably take up the whole show talking about what I saw there, um, but I, I'm not going to do that. Artemis one late it's they said late 2020 early 2021 it's going to launch from pad 39b pad 39a is the one that was leased by spacex um there's another falcon heavy launch coming up uh, at the end of this month and just little things that that i appreciated learning about how spacex assembles their rockets horizontally and then lifts them we assemble in the big vab the vehicle assemble assembly building um, vertically. So just all the facts and figures of that building, I loved hearing. Um, there was some, one, another interesting thing was that they encouraged us to take photos when we were there, except for one thing we weren't allowed to photograph, and that's the guard shack. And I call it a shack because it really did look like a shack. It was, you know, passed, I passed through it twice because I uh, once on, um, each day the tour and it was just a little one room building and I looked because they had told us ahead of time not to photograph it I looked to see if there were any high-tech cameras or any sophisticated equipment there and I mean what, what do I know but I didn't see anything like that I just thought it was odd that we weren't allowed to photograph the guard stations and there's probably a really good reason for it and Richard probably knows so um, I'm, I'm curious about that but other than that they took us over to where the Apollo 1 fire happened that launch pad uh, I had never been there before and just there's a museum back there and just all the old launch pads and there was a lot of construction going on roads we were not allowed to go down because they were not open to the public and I got to see a lot more of the land. I, you know, when I, when I tell people about what it's like there, it's one of my favorite places to go because it's quiet and it's peaceful and there's lots of open space and the oceans there. And it's also a wildlife preserve. Mm -hmm. So I would have thought it was, 
I'm sorry. I would have thought it was noisy with rockets going up and things, but you're saying it's quiet and peaceful. It's very peaceful and it's very Mm. quiet. And because the, the ocean's right there and it's not open to the public, you know what I mean? That's very quiet. But this wildlife preserve is kind of interesting. Um, there are a lot of alligators that Ooh, are in. So the the bus tour goes on these roads that are not open to the public. and But of course, there are a lot of employees in the area, buildings everywhere. And there are gators in the I don't know what these things are, these ditches along the road. And there's other wildlife as well. But um, I just wonder why they let them kind of walk around. I guess one of them even walked into a building that had one of those automatic doors like the grocery stores have. You're saying the gator walked into the building? Yeah, I I wasn't there, but there's a story that they told about that. So I found that interesting. And and then there's the old, a lot of the old original buildings are still there, but some of them are in the process of being torn down. And the new administration building is there now um, being built. And they said it's going to be seven stories, one for each planet in the solar system. And then they went into how Pluto's not a planet and I had to keep my mouth shut. So anyway, like I said, I could go on and on. I put a few pictures in the radio with pictures section. If anybody wants to look at those, Um, I've also put some on social media as well. So have I missed anything? No, I felt like I was there with you. Well, and I'm, and, yeah, go ahead. Go and ahead. I find it interesting, the shift to commercialization, where these mm-hmm. companies are coming in now to be, to lead the space journey and, forward. And I think that that's what Von Braun had predicted would happen. And it sure is happening. There was a very interesting quote by him in the museum, uh, I think I have a photo of that up there. It says, it, meaning the rocket, will free man from his remaining chains, the chains of gravity, which still tie him to this planet. It will open to him the gates of heaven. I just thought that was a little dark. I don't know. I don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can ask Dr. James when we bring him on. All right. So should we bring on Dr. James? Yeah. Uh, I'll allow you to introduce him, please. Okay. Ken James is a Jungian analyst in private practice in Chicago, Illinois. He received a PhD in communicative sciences and disorders from Northwestern University and a diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. In addition to analytical psychology, he has studied and practiced a modality of music therapy known as guided imagery and music, or GIM, hypnotherapy, EMDR, and has done postdoctoral study at Chicago's Catholic Theological Union. He's done workshops around the world on the relationship between divination and synchronicity, and on the use of the tarot as a way to explore the unconscious. The relationship between Jungian thought, clinical practice, and esoterica has been a strong motif of his work throughout his career. Dr. James, are you there? I am. Hello. Hi. Welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It's really good to have you here tonight. So, We have a lot to cover tonight, and I was wondering if maybe you wanted to say a few words to start? Well, sure. I I might begin with that quote. I could see where it it might seem dark, Mm, but, mm -hmm. you know, you see also in it the expression of a call that from a Jungian perspective, we would say the ego receives from a much deeper part of our personality, much deeper part of our being called the self. And 
I don't know that Jung was familiar with that quote, but I think it would please him very much because it fits very nicely with the way he understands the structure and the dynamics of the mind. Mm -hmm. So we need to cover for those out there who are not familiar with Jung. I'd like to start with who Jung was very briefly, what Jungian psychology is about, and then specifically, what is a Jungian analyst? Because you are a Jungian analyst. You're not a psychologist who's read a bit of Jung. You are um, a very rare breed, I have to say. Um, and I would like to go into a little bit about why that is. So let's start off with who Jung was. So Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist. Um, who began his work as a psychiatrist with severely mentally ill people in a psychiatric hospital in Switzerland called the Berkhosley Clinic. And based on his work there, he began to reconceptualize the understanding of working with people with severe mental illness. And as he was working, he read a book by Sigmund Freud on the interpretation of dreams, and he realized that Freud had expressed something that Jung felt was very important in his own work. And that began a period of collaboration between him and Freud that went on for a decent amount of time until. Jung published a book called The Psychology of the Unconscious, which appears in in his collected works, a book, um, a a set of 20 volumes of Jung's collected work. And when he published that, he had the temerity to say that he differed with Freud in terms of the nature of the fundamental energy of the mind. For Freud, the fundamental energy of the psyche or the mind, we use that term interchangeably, uh, was sexual in nature. And that was sort of the connotative meaning of the word libido in Freud's psychology. Uh, Jung questioned the fundamental nature of libido as being sexual. And this was intolerable to Freud. And Freud asked that Jung retract it, that statement, Mm -hmm. and Jung refused to do that. And that led to a very, very difficult break between Jung and Freud. That sent Jung really into a downward spiral. Among Jungians, we call it the period of his creative illness, during which time he produced what has been published as a red book. Um, But other people consider it to be a period of significant psychotic activity for Jung. Yes. Right. Either way, based on that work, Jung was able to not only reconceptualize his approach to psyche, but I really feel he changed uh, the face of psychology and certainly therapeutic intervention. Um, and you know what's interesting? Yeah. I'm just going to jump in here. Yeah, is that we're talking about what year here? The very early 1900s, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But and so here we are 100 years later and not that many people know about Jung, but just about everybody knows about Freud. And that, you know, and I come across that because of what I do and that I interview Jungian analysts. And when I tell people that they say, what? You know, who? And w- could I, could I just ask you to briefly tell us why you think that is, that Jung is not a household name, yet Freud is? Well, yeah, there's a, um, I think a lot of reasons. I think also I would, I would add that at least terms from Jungian psychology have become household words. Yeah. But it's kind of unfortunate because taken out of context, they seem sort of shallow and silly, which they aren't. Um, I think one of the reasons is that Jung cast a very wide net. 
uh, just the fact that, you know, I'm an analyst and I'm on this program talking about UFOs is an indication uh, of just how wide ranging Jung's interests were. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they were so wide ranging is he felt everything expressed the truth about the psyche and that it really was our job to study anything and everything as a means of coming to a deeper understanding of the way the levels of psyche sort of communicate with us. But Jung was also very clear that who I believe I am, who you believe you are as a person, really isn't um, the whole story for us, that there is something deeper and more real than our personal identity. And the term Jung used for personal identity is ego. And he felt that the job of psychology would be for the ego to become relativized to the self, which is a much deeper part of mm-hmm. the psyche. Um, so yeah. so you, we talked a little bit about who Jung was, and I have to say, I believe Jung was ahead of his time and was an extraordinary man. His body of work spanned decades, right? From yes. around 1900 until his death in 1961. Yeah. yeah. And he worked and he wrote the entire time. He did. So we established a little bit about who he was. So would you how would you explain what Jungian psychology is? And the technical name of Jung psychology is actually analytical psychology. So when I read your bio, I said that you have a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst, and that's a postgraduate degree. Yes, it is. So right. we'll talk I'm gonna ask you how would you define analytical psychology? And then we'll get into what is a Jungian analyst. And then we'll bring in all these other, all these other topics that this show likes to talk about. Okay. So analytical psychology, as you said, is the, the school of psychology that Jung pioneered. And it's a way of looking at the psyche that seeks to help an individual progress along the path of what Jung called individuation. Uh, Jung said that although we call ourselves individuals, we really aren't. We are divided. We are individuals. And that we have to work very hard to become individuals. And the way that that happens is also one of the reasons why I think Jungian psychology is unpopular or not as popular as Freud. And that is that the ego, who I am, has to learn how to be relativized to a much greater part of the psyche. And so analytical psychology seeks to develop ways that people can relativize their sense of personal power to something greater. The term that Jung used for this is the self. And if you read what he's written about the self, it could also um, point to characteristics of uh, what people might call God or the divine. Jung said that he spoke as a psychologist, therefore he used psychological terms. But I think that's another reason why people are uncomfortable with Jungian psychology. It It doesn't play well within the confines of academic psychology or even the confines of what the majority of psychotherapists want to believe the psyche is. Mm -hmm. So we have only about four minutes until our first break. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that some of Jung's terms are household words. And I'd like to go over those when we come back. Some of them include introvert, extrovert, synchronicity, archetype, 
um, anima, animus, and this show doesn't really deal with all those things except probably for synchronicity, which we, we're going to talk about later when we talk about Jung's relationship with Wolfgang Pauli. But going back to what I had asked you earlier about being a Jungian analyst, we have about three minutes. So would you tell us briefly what it took and what it takes for someone to become a Jungian analyst? Sure. So as you said, it's a postgraduate um, sort of training program. Mm -hmm. And even before you apply, uh, you have to have pretty much completed a full analysis with a Jungian analyst. So the prerequisite for even applying for training is completing your own personal analysis. That would be for the first time because you go through a second analysis and, and a few others during the training. Then the training consists of a minimum of four years of coursework during which time you are still involved in your personal analysis and also involved in an analysis of your work with clients. The clients of analysts are called analysands, and that's called a control analysis. So at one time I was in personal analysis and was working with two control analysts at the same time, along with taking courses. And there are exams and there's a thesis at the end and also case write-ups at the end. So all the way through, there's evaluations, mostly oral as well as written. It was grueling. <laughs> mm -hmm. It sounds grueling, but I also wanted to point out what you said about it being postgraduate. So in order to even apply to a training program, you have to have a graduate degree, which would be either a master's degree, a PhD, an MD, even uh, a dental, a DDS, a doctor of dentistry, any kind of postgraduate degree. So you yeah. can't just have a four-year college degree and no. then apply to a training program. No, no. Um, Jung felt that becoming an analyst was really a task for what he called the second half of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, when I applied, I don't think we can do this anymore. Uh, we were told that we couldn't apply unless we were over 35. So there was a kind of an age restriction in that direction. Mm -hmm. Sounds like we're coming up on a break. Kinthea, are you still there? Maybe she stepped away. So you're on the other side of midnight. Our guest host tonight is Laura London, and our guest is Dr. Ken James, and we'll reach you on the other side. Anybody in the alternative field, you can hear this all the time. You can see it in um, communications all the time with, with the researchers. It, it's really tough to keep going, keep this stuff afloat. It's not mainstream yet, although it's getting there. And we'll talk about some of that tonight. But it is tough. And I want you guys out there, those new listeners that are coming in, those that are going to come throughout the night, which I will mention, is, is to think about very much joining Club 19.5. Now, what it gives you access to is all of the broadcasts that Richard has done since, I believe, 2015 um, up until now. And there's been a few of us guest hosts that have come in and helped out when, when we, you know, when he's needed us, you know, et cetera. And that's not only that, but you get perks that will that we've started and we're going to do more just to keep it on the air. In Richard's case, he's a researcher and he comes in twice a week working on this show and right now he needs a bit of time for himself so that's one thing I want you to think about another one is the donate button it's on the homepage, um, the other side of minute.com it's on the homepage. you can find it there please in your hearts think about a contribution whatever you can manage would be so helpful 
You can find the button also on each page on the left-hand column. Um, it, it's at the top. And if you're using your phone, you should be able to find that on your navigation. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest host tonight is Laura London, and our guest is Dr. Ken James. The show is Our Human Need for Myth, and we're discussing Carl Jung. So, Laura and Dr. James. Hi, thanks. Yeah, we were, where we left off, we were talking about what it takes to become a Jungian analyst and what is involved with the training program and how this differs. Um, My next question for you, Dr. James, was going to be how this differs from a clinical psychologist and how Jung's psychology, this is a big thing for me, differs from pop psychology. And I just would like to, to remind the audience that we're still just kind of laying the foundation here to get to the main topic of tonight where we're going to talk about myth and UFOs and aliens and all of that. So Jung, Jungian psychology differs from clinical psychology. First of all, the training differs because although there is an academic component, the primary core of training is the personal analysis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew that that was part of it. That actually was why I wanted to train as an analyst, because I felt that was the only way I could practice with integrity would, would be to go through my own analysis. And in fact, when I started my analysis, I had no um, goal in mind to become an analyst. It was actually the furthest thing from my mind. I was on an academic track uh, um, in teaching in the university. So um, I began my analysis and realized I didn't want to do anything else but that. Wait a minute. Uh, so let me just jump in here. You, you were a professor and right. you were going through your own personal analysis with an analyst for your own personal reasons. It wasn't, right. it didn't have anything to do with your career. No. no I've heard so many people say that. And I just have to say for myself, I entered analysis at a very young age, which is a little unusual because as you had mentioned before, it's kind of a second half of life thing. But I've heard so many analysts say that they had no intentions of becoming an analyst. Not all but most actually that I've spoken to for me, I went through a very lengthy analysis and I never, I have never had the desire to become an analyst myself. I think that that is not my strong suit um, to work one-on-one with others like that. So you're Mm -hmm. saying that while you were in analysis, you realized that you wanted to do that too. Yes. Right. Right. There was a freedom that I felt in, in the way my analyst practiced that mm-hmm. I, was an, I, I, had, I was working in a clinic at the university, but it was very restrictive. The way I like to put it is uh, when you work clinically, you're trained to ignore data because you have a paradigm that tells you what should be happening. And anything that doesn't fit that paradigm you just kind of push off to one side or you label as pathological. Okay, so what do you mean by when you're working clinically? Well, when you're working clinically in a uh, Mm non-Jungian way, you really are looking at the paradigm of normality or the paradigm of functionality of the individual in the world. And so everything is geared towards strengthening the ego, strengthening the person's ability to interact with the so-called outer world, strengthening the individual's uh, capacity to adapt 
to all of the vicissitudes of life, the things that just come to us because that's the way life is. And that's a focus. It's to get the person into a good enough frame of mind and behavior so that they could go and live their lives. And any behavior or thought or experience that seems a little bit marginal or irrelevant to that primary goal is basically discouraged or ignored. Mm-hmm. And of course, for Jung, that's where the gold was. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to where we were, where you were undergoing analysis. You realized you wanted to become an analyst yourself. Um, and you said something about integrity. And what I want to ask you is, or what I'd like to to point out and, and hear your thoughts about is you were you said that you had to undergo your own personal analysis in order to become an analyst. Clinical psychologists don't have to do that. They don't have to. Psychiatrists don't have to do that. Social workers don't have to do that. Jungian-oriented therapists don't have to do that. But Jungian analysts do. And I think Freudian analysts do as well. Freudian analysts do as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the All of the other professions that you labeled, uh, generally, acad- they're all um, sort of training that is done by an academic institution. And academic institutions, for a variety of reasons, are reluctant to require something like that. It's considered too personal. It's considered, you know, often it's strongly encouraged. Um, I've worked with people who were in training as psychotherapists in various programs, and periodically their university would send a paper to me to initial, uh, verifying the number of hours, which I hated to do because I felt that it was <laughs> a violation of the of the analytic vessel, but I would do it. But it isn't required. Um, and so- yeah. So we, I think we've established what it takes to become a Jungian analyst and it's a lot of work. It's a lot of years. So start to finish, how many years on average does somebody go, go through? So if you talk about start to finish the four-year degree, which is necessary in order to go to graduate school and right. then minimum for a master's two years, PhD four years, and then how many years after that to earn your diploma in analytical psychology? So if you're very focused and a little bit manic, you could Mm -hmm. probably finish it in about four years. Well, no, that would be the minimum. So let's say four to five years. Mm -hmm. Um, In my experience, there have only been two analysts out of our Institute that did it in that amount of time. Uh, I took four and a half years, um, and that that was considered pretty. You took pretty four and a half years in the training pretty, program, right? Right. But and that's then, more characteristic of my personality. I just okay, do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's really what distinguishes it from anything else is that you have got to undergo your own personal analysis. And right. would you just talk a little bit about what that means? I mean, what goes on in analysis? Well, it's it's very individual, of course, but it what it entails is being able to go weekly, sometimes more than once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and sit in a room with your analyst and simply talk about whatever is coming up for you. Primary material in Jungian analysis, of course, is the dream, but there could be a variety of other sources of material, relationships, day-to-day life, difficulties. But it's not, it's not just chit-chatting, right? Oh, no, no, no. So the analyst is working with the analysis unconscious. Right, right. And so where I want to go tonight with you is 
eventually talk about the difference between the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, because that's what we're going to be focusing on later when we talk about all these things that we have planned to talk about. Yes. So that so, was, yeah, mm-hmm. that Please was one of Jung's great contributions is his understanding that the unconscious as conceptualized by Freud had two, at least two layers to it. And Jung was brought to the understanding of that structure of the psyche, not through speculation, but actually through his work with psychiatric patients. Um, One difference in terms of the patient populations that Jung and Freud work with um, was that Jung worked with severely mentally ill psychotic patients, and Freud worked primarily with mildly suffering people or what Mm -hmm. was called neurotic patients. Um, Because of Jung's work with psychotic patients, he was presented with material that went far beyond what we would consider an ordinary individual life could uh, contain. And he began to wonder about what the unconscious really was. And in working with the unconscious, one of the things that you watch for as an analyst are complexes, which are kind of feeling tone sets of ideas and images that take a person over. So for example, you might start talking about um, a person's early school experience and their personal experience may have been that they were shamed and made to feel inferior. So they will begin to almost be possessed by a feeling of shame and inferiority that will then guide their their behavior in ways that obviously is not going to be showing their best face to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are as many complexes as there are people. So you mentioned the word complex, and that yeah. reminds me of what we were talking about earlier about terms that Jung coined that are kind of household names, mm-hmm. um, but people don't attribute them to him. And also some of these terms are kind of misunderstood. It took me a long time to understand what a complex was because mm-hmm. I was used to the phrase, oh, he has an inferiority complex. Well, that's not the way Jung used that term. And right. I would say that understanding what a complex is, is one of the biggest things that has helped me in my life is, and and another thing that we learn in analysis is that it's all about us and not about the other person. So Mm -hmm. I have to know my complexes. And that's, I think, one of the things we do in analysis is understand our own complexes, not put it outside of ourselves. So, um, that's actually what Jungian psychology was originally called, wasn't it? It was complex psychology. It was. That's well. It's interesting that you um, you say that complex psychology. Jung did discover the complex. He discovered it through uh, painstaking experimental research researches with what he called the word association experiment. Uh, in which the the subject, the person being examined, is presented with a list of between 50 and 100 words. They're just plain words. Um, And the person is told, when you hear a word, say the first thing that comes into your mind, and the analyst writes down the association. Um, Ordinarily, the associations come quickly, bird, fly, dog, bark. But then there'll be a word, and it doesn't even have to be an objectively loaded word, and the subject won't be able to come up with an association, or the association will have a significant delay or latency. And so the analyst takes note of that and begins to construct a picture of the complexes that the individual 
struggles with. That was Jung's initial research. Um, and Freud felt that the concept of the complex was so valuable that even after Jung uh, and Freud split, Freud continued to give Jung credit for that concept. And yes, Freud referred to uh, Jung's work as complex psychology. Mm -hmm. So, um, but Jung was kind of struck by the fact that if, if complexes arise from our personal experiences, in other words, the way complexes form is I go through my life and most of the time the, the experiences that come to me, I'm able to deal with, but once in a while, there'll be some leftover material. I didn't quite process. I didn't quite get, I didn't quite finish. And that would be stored in my unconscious for later processing. And Jung, Jung agreed with that as an understanding of the unconscious. But what puzzled him was if the, the personal unconscious would just be filled with material from my day-to-day -day life that I was sort of putting there for later processing, why does it exhibit such an incredibly intricate organization such as having all of these complexes? Because life comes at us randomly. So my unconscious ought to look like the trunk of my car was just full of stuff, but it actually is highly organized. And Jung began to wonder where did that organization come from? And little by little over the course of many, many years and many, many uh, experiences with patients, Jung came to hypothesize that perhaps there was a substrate of the unconscious, a layer of the unconscious that was already structured so that when I experience my life, those experiences are actually being sort of given form by a layer of my unconscious that simply is present because I'm here as a human being. And Jung began to distinguish between that part of the unconscious that's filled with material from my personal life, and he called that the personal unconscious. And then this other layer of the unconscious that is really more about structure, and he called that the collective unconscious. And the structures in the collective unconscious, he called the archetypes. He eventually called the archetypes. Mm -hmm. And they are structural elements of the psyche that are given. They are not acquired through experience. And so the, is this where myth comes in? Religion? Where, yes. All of those things, myth, religion, um, kinship, you know, cultural uh, rituals, all of these are manifestations or outpicturings or expressions of aspects of this collective unconscious aspects of the archetypes. So I have a friend who actually, he just finished a, a training program um, in another country. I don't want to give away who it is. And he is very adamant. He said, you are not a Jungian unless or until you have experienced the collective unconscious. And I don't question him on that because I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder what he means by that. Do you, could you tell us what he means by that? Well, I can't tell you what he means by that, but I would right. tell you what oh, I would mean by that. That's such a Jungian answer. <laughs> well, I would say he's absolutely right, but I'm kind of a radical Jungian, so I would say you can't not experience a collective unconscious. Okay. The important thing is that you begin to notice that that's what you're experiencing. So would you give us an example of experiencing the collective unconscious? Any ritual that you go through, simple or complex, we, the behaviors 
the the expectations, the patterns that people go through in any ritual are dictated by and supported by the collective unconscious. So just think of any ritual that you go through, a ritual of baptism or marriage or even family rituals. We, this is Father's Day. So the rituals that people might have gone through today to honor their parent would be both personal effort and personal activity right now in space and time in 2019 in June and the the structuring energy or forces behind those rituals are ageless and they come from the collective unconscious so it really is being able to look at our day-to-day life and recognize there's much more here than meets the eye, much more and, here than we're given to uh, expect. And there is a difference between a ritual and a routine, right? Yes. So what yeah, makes something... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, a lot of, of what ought to be rituals have become routine. Um, and this is actually related to another concept, which is a concept of synchronicity. For an act, for a, a, something to be a ritual, by definition, there has to be some sort of action in the so-called outer world. But it has to be performed with congruent thoughts, feelings, ideas within the mind of the people performing it. And that unification of the outer and the inner is behind the notion of synchronicity. It's behind much of Jung's most profound teachings. It's what led Jung to study all of the things he studied. What do you mean? I think his interests, alchemy, Mm -hmm. um, divination, UFOs, taking a look at world religions, taking a look at mythologies from all sorts of cultures, Jung was seeking constantly evidence, data, to help him express his understanding of what this collective part of the psyche really is. It was a working hypothesis, I think, probably for more of his life than it was sort of a, a stated part of his psychology. And, and I always point out to people that Jung was an MD. He was a psychiatrist. Yes. He was a scientist and he was very adamant about that as well. And I was listening to a lecture that you gave uh, at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, and you said Jung came out of a university tradition that very much believed that science would completely save humanity. That yeah. was the belief that was prevalent during his time. Yes, yes. And that's why Jung, and Freud too, for that matter, constantly referred to their work as um, experimental as being scientific and he was very proud of this because he felt that the same dedication that physical scientists brought to their domain scientists of the mind could bring and ultimately there would be a a a deep scientific understanding of this thing that we call the psyche and would you say he did? He I would did say he did, but, you know, by the standards of Western psychology today, both he mm-hmm. and Freud failed miserably. And that's really kind of sad because their researches were, had wide-ranging impact and the implications of their clinical work, which is where they did their research, um, really form the basis for any kind of psychotherapeutic interaction today of any sort. But much of what they did wasn't replicable in the way that 
modern psychological studies are replicable. And I have a lot of, of uh, friends who do, you know, lab psychology. So I'm not um, being critical of any particular person's work. But, you know, you can get a lot of funding for a study that will help you reduce nail biting in people through the application of certain treatments. Mm -hmm. And that will be able to be replicated. And it might be useful for a chronic nail biter. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really get at what what the human being is suffering from. Right. What's underneath it. What's underneath it. And what it means. You know, that, that that's another thing. You know, we Jung was adamant that the most important thing to bring to any kind of so-called symptom is the question, what does this mean? That includes what may have caused this symptom in the person's personal history, but it also includes what is this symptom pulling the person toward? And that's the part that's often either ignored or thought to be way too strange from a Jungian perspective. And I think there's a fear of going that deep. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of Right. Yeah, and it takes a lot of time, and not a lot of people want to do it. But like my analysts used to always say, you got something better to do, <laughs> right, than work on yourself or know right. yourself. Right. So that kind of explains why Jung isn't as popular as the quick fix Um you know, prescribe a pill because Jung didn't pathologize things. That's true. Right. And, and that when I entered into analysis, I wanted to know what's wrong with me. You know, let's fix this. And it wasn't about that. And so it took me down this whole other road and we're coming up at to the top of the hour where we're going to have to take another break. And when we come back, I'd like to start talking about Jung's relationship with Wolfgang Pauli because that's he Pauli is who encouraged Jung to publish his work on synchronicity, which Jung sat on for many, many years. And synchronicity is something that, you know, people think they understand it. I thought I understood it and I'm still finding the layers to it and that it isn't what people think it is. Thank you. You're on the other side of midnight. Our guest host tonight is Laura and Dr. James is our guest. to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. <laughs> 